Please pray with me as we prepare our hearts for the proclamation of God's Word. Father, thank you again for our time together, and we do pray specifically for our time together as we open up your Word. Give us hearts of joy as we consider the truth contained in 1 Peter. Give us humble hearts to obey it. And Father, we ask that you would continue to do your work in this church, and ultimately that you would, as your word is proclaimed, be blessed by it, and that your son would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. We will continue our study, the beginning of chapter 5, the opening, the opening chunk of that, First Peter chapter 5. We are in one of the final sections of First Peter, calling this Shepherds, the front line of true grace. Please hear the word of the Lord as I read First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So that is the word of God. We'll be continuing our study in verses 1 through 4 today. And as I mentioned already, this section is called Shepherds, the Front Line of True Grace. So that constitutes the whole of this section. We've been moving through First Peter, uh, really emphasizing the central theme of true grace. That is, a full, comprehensive, authentic kind of grace which draws us to Christ, especially through suffering. When we say true grace, because we of course know that there are false graces. So we want to emphasize on what is true. And we know that true grace is that which is found in Christ and in Christ alone that equips us with everything necessary to not only be born again, but also to follow Him, to walk with Him no matter the situation. It is a grace that prepares us for glory. It is a grace that enables us to walk in victory that Jesus Christ has procured for His people. And one of the major responsibilities of this, of communicating this, of teaching this to the church falls upon the elders. And so we are exploring that very important theme of Scripture, but most specifically in the book of First Peter. As we talked about last Lord's Day, Scripture has quite a bit to say about leadership. It has quite a bit to say about these people called elders and how they serve the people of God. If you look at a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 3, that discusses mostly the characteristics, the qualifications of the elder. Whereas in 1 Peter, we see more of, more of, of active application. How is this elder, how is this overseer meant to shepherd the flock of God? Now, we have to keep in mind also that this is within the context of mounting persecution. And so it prevails upon the elders of the church to faithfully and with integrity lead the church through suffering, through those times of rejection and persecution where it becomes increasingly difficult to walk blamelessly. There's temptations all around to take the easy road, to reject Christ, to compromise our stance on the gospel so as to be accepted by an unbelieving society or to see persecution stop. No one likes suffering, right? We, Peter calls it a, a fiery trial, so it is difficult. Persecution isn't easy, but nor is following Christ. So the great responsibility of these under-shepherds is to shepherd faithfully the flock of God. We are under-shepherds under the great shepherd, or the chief shepherd, or the good shepherd. See, we are to model ourselves after the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to emulate Him in the way that we lead and teach the church. Unless I forget to say it, I just want you guys to be reminded 
that any way that Jeremy and I shepherd you, no matter what the context, it is never without the instrumentality of the Word of God. No matter how we shepherd you, the Word of God is always central. The Word of God is always to be our final authority, to have the ultimate say. There should never be a a context where we are leading you where we fail to bring the Word of God to bear. That is our priority. That is our calling. And that is our command. And that is what we desire to do. Before we get into reviewing last week's content, I want to mention something. You know, we're kind of working our way through the the text here. And and in verse 1, Peter says quite quite a bit by way of introduction. But we didn't highlight this last Lord's Day. But I would like to make mention of this today because I believe it's important. Very important for the church. Notice that Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Right? So he is exhorting elders. At Emmaus Rotoform Baptist Church, we believe in the plurality of elders. That leadership does not fall into the hands of just one man, but on a multitude. At least two. And that's what we have right now. We believe in a plurality of elders. Let me just go over a few benefits of this because I think it's worth explaining. First of all, plurality of elders preserves unity. Preserves unity. You, something that is highly desirable is unity within the leadership. By and large, you want your elders to be teaching pretty much the same thing. You want there to be hearty agreement. There's always going to be nuance, but for the most part, there has to be strong agreement in the fundamentals of the faith, but also the general vision and direction and mission of the church. An agreement as to the church's priorities. And of course, the benefit of that is that those priorities are found within Scripture. But there must be agreement. And it prevents one man or one leader or one elder from being wishy-washy concerning what those things are and what they entail. Here's another thing. is A plurality of elders prevents tyranny. We'll get into that a little bit this morning. But we do not want one man going on a power trip. To have another elder lends itself to preventing some kind of dictatorship within the church. There is mutual accountability. There is what you call, in American parlance, checks and balances. Where elders are able to lead together and to ensure that not one is lording himself over the church. And by extension, we have a third thing. A plurality of elders will protect the flock. Will protect the flock. Here's what I mean by that. One elder is not going to notice everything. I have my blind spots. There are certain things that I'm not going to notice when I'm trying to shepherd you guys. I want to be faithful, but there's many things that I miss. I I can mention a few instances in the past where Jeremy has mentioned something to me, and I said, I had no idea that that was going on. Thanks for telling me. See, I have my blind spots. And so as a team, as a plurality of elders, we are able to, in a sense, notice more as we are doing the work of an overseer and we oversee things, having an extra pair of eyes or several extra pairs of eyes help us to better understand what is going on and to take note of those blind spots. Here's the fourth one. We have seen the work of this going on for the last 2,000 years. Plurality of elders passes on the truth. So we don't have just one teacher. We have two teachers at least. And hopefully we will be training others. We pass on the truth. When you have more than one teacher, you can pass on the word of truth more effectively and more efficiently. You have a variety then of occasions where the truth of the Gospel and the Lordship of Christ can be proclaimed and taught. You have more disciples in your midst. And that's what we desire to do here. We want to pass on the truth. We want to equip you. Equip you for the work of the ministry. It's very important to us that we live up to that. Here's another thought I would like to give you all this morning. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11, we read this. And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man 
to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This reminds us, reminds all elders of what our responsibility is and what, a, and what we desire to live up to. This text indicates that God gives elders as a gift to the church. We want to live and shepherd consistently with that. We want to be seen as a gift. We want to be identified with God's grace to the flock. We don't want to be seen as a burden or as a curse or as a nuisance or as a, an ungodly example. We want to live consistently with this. We want to be a blessing to you. Which, as we emphasized strongly last week, that means being among you and getting to know you and being familiar with you and to be accountable to you. One thing that I want to share this text with you, Jeremy sent me this last week, regarding our relationship to the church. He says this, if you are blessed enough to observe the faults and blemishes of your elders slash pastors, then praise God that they are in your life and that you know them so well. We want you guys to know us well. We want you to, yes, we want you to be able to call us out if we are in error. We want you to be familiar with our lifestyle, with our habits, right? with our strengths, and with our weaknesses. Something you have to know about elders is even though we are leaders, we are still in the flock of God. We are still prone to the same weakness. We still are flesh and blood. We are still growing. And as I will add too, we are still students of the Word. We understand that even though we oversee and we lead and shepherd you with the Word, we are still under the Word, still learning, still growing, still maturing. And it is a church-wide effort to see that development. So as we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 once again, we see a remarkably simple presentation of the responsibilities of elders. And this is great. You know, you, when it comes to leadership, you, we want a good leadership manual. And we need to go to the Word of God and to see what He says about leadership. Much, much is said about leadership. But we care what God says above, above all else. So we highlighted last week that there overall in this text are three characteristics, right? Three characteristics of this godly shepherding. We've, we've entitled this sermon, Shepherd the Flock of God, Reflecting the Heart of Christ in Leading God's People. And so there are three ways that elders are called in this passage to reflect the heart of Christ. That's a big calling, not just leadership in a vague sense. We want to lead in such a way where we are able to reflect the heart of Jesus, to care as He does for His precious flock. And really, I can say you guys are precious to us. You are valuable. Jesus has redeemed you, and so we want to, with a humble spirit, lead you in Christ. So three things, and here's the first one. The first one is found in verse 2. And that is a passion for sacrificial service. A passion for sacrificial service. So listen to this verse, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So notice he says, not this way, but this way. And so this characteristic covers two of these things. So he says, not under compulsion. When you lead them, don't do so under compulsion. Have a God-given desire to do so. Do so earnestly, eagerly. He says, but voluntarily. And then he says this, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. Okay, not for sordid gain. Not, not so that we may achieve and, and, and mount up personal benefits or personal material possessions. Basically, not to use, not to use you as our personal bank or as an avenue of of getting wealthy. And isn't it amazing that this was warned about hundreds of years ago, and we still see this issue today, where would-be shepherds who are supposed to care for the flock of God and be sacrificially in service to them, and they are using the church, they are using all of their benefactors in order to grow wealthy. We see that today in the health and wealth gospel. And for some tragic reason, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. 
It is still very present. It's no wonder that the preachers who engage in that kind of that kind of error have to also convince their followers that they too must be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and and well in all cases. Why? Because if the preacher's the only one accumulating wealth, it looks kind of suspicious. Looks kind of fishy. So then they preach that message so that everyone has to do it. Everyone has to have it. And if not, there's something wrong with your faith. That's very simply put. But that is the sum and substance of what is going on there. Peter says this is not to be the case with you. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And notice how this eagerness tempers this temptation for sordid gain. If you are doing so eagerly, you are not looking for that kind of gain, that ungodly benefit. You are looking to put your own interests aside and serve sacrificially. We look to Jesus, the good shepherd, who laid his life down for the sheep as the ultimate example. Our greatest reward then in the ministry is delighting in seeing the people of God become more like Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Word, and we're willing to do that at personal expense, rather than taking advantage of the flock to enrich ourselves with power, influence, and human admiration. And notice this too, where we draw this from. It says, according to the will of God. This is literally according to God. So it's not just in, in terms of what God commands, but it's in terms of what God Himself has done. We do so according to God's character and His actions. We look to Him as a model. And so we look no further than that sacrifice of Christ, of that Good Shepherd laying His life down for us. That is the ultimate example and model of sacrificial service. That's why 1 John says, if Christ has laid, his down, laid down His life for us, so we also ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. A sacrificial kind of love is to be employed by all those who would call themselves shepherds of God's flock. So not just the will of God, but in God's way, according to what God Himself has done. See, isn't it interesting that God in this text is not asking anything of his under-shepherds that he himself has not already done, and done in a perfect way. So that's that first characteristic. Sacrificial service, a passion for sacrificial service. Here's the second one. Reflecting the heart of Christ and leading God's people is characterized by this, the proof of humble leadership. So not only are we to be sacrificial, we are to be humble. You know you can lay your life down, you can put your own interests aside and still be puffed up about it. And we are to lead sacrificially, but also humbly. So look at verse 3. Once again, he gives a negative and then he gives the positive instruction. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. So notice how those two things relate to one another. Not as lording it over, but as proving to be examples of the flock. So lording it over simply means to lead in a domineering fashion. To lead in a domineering fashion. Like I am some kind of emperor or dictator within the church that I am not to be questioned. That's a huge pitfall among preachers. Always has been. Especially today. It's sort of this this domineering, proud application of leadership as such that even the preacher is unwilling to come under the authority of the Word of God. Maybe some of you have encountered, uh, encountered an elder like that where for some reason they just didn't like to be corrected. You tried to mention something to them and immediately you, you, you got a response that was really... A, a personal attack, or your motives were autom automatically assaulted, where this preacher or elder or church leader did not think over what you had to say to them. That is the mark of a dictator. If a person cannot take correction, or if you are in a church where you are fearful over going to your elders and questioning them, that is something that should not be in a church. You should be able to go to your elders. You should be able to come to me and Jeremy and address your grievances. Or if you've noticed something about us, or if you think that we lord it over you, then that is something that needs to be pointed out. 
We say before, even if you were wrong, it's better to say something and be wrong than to be right and not saying it, say it at all. That's where humble leadership comes in. We should be, as elders, humble enough to receive correction and reproof from you even if it is wrong. We should be humble enough to listen. And as elders, we are to facilitate that kind of accountability. To see you as our responsibility to lead you humbly, not to dominate people in the sense where we see you as useful idiots that are, that are only present to help us realize our hopes and dreams and to, big, and to build big churches. No, we are accountable to you. We are to lead you humbly and not lord it over you. We are not here as an elder board to become a dictator factory. But that's what happens when this position goes to one's head and automatically this rejects Christ as head of His church. You realize that's the only, that's the only head of the church. Elders are not the head of the church. If anything, we're the mouthpiece. We proclaim the Word of God, right? We, we lead and we teach, we instruct. But only Christ is head. And it should terrify any elder at the proposition of trying to usurp Christ from that. Consider the Lord's rebuke to the religious leaders of Judah in Ezekiel's day. See, this has always been an issue. This has always been something that the people of God, especially the leaders of the people of God, have had to wrestle with. In Ezekiel 34, verse 4, we read this. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the loss. You have not done things. these things. What have you done? He says this. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. And I would say this sometimes is a challenge. If we see a, a particular sheep who has a habit, a long-standing pattern of being obstinate toward reproof and exhortation and clear teaching from the Word of God, yes, there is that temptation to, to get exasperated and to react with, with impatience. There is a temptation to be dismissive of that person. Or, as Ezekiel says, to treat them with an ungodly amount of force. Yes, there is some time. You know, you talk about with a sheep, a sheep that keeps wandering, you break their legs and you sling them over your, your shoulder. And you carry them. See, in this sense, you're just, you're just breaking their legs and leaving them to lie where they are. There is no care this, with this force and severity. He says, you have dominated them. You have lorded yourself over them. That is not the example that we are to follow. See, humility is shown. Humble leadership is shown when elders are able to identify with the sickly, to identify with the diseased and the broken and the scattered. And to do this not with force and severity, but with compassion and tenderness, even if that compassion and tenderness needs to be forceful at some time. Listen also to what Jesus says in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself, that is his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. So he's drawing from a pagan example. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Now listen to this. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Note how he contrasts that. And what is so interesting about this, what, what should not escape our attention, is who is saying this? Jesus is saying this while, as creator and sustainer of the entire universe, and He is the one who actually has the authority to lord it over people. He has the right. And yet He's saying, instead of doing that, instead of calling in that right to be served, he himself girds himself with the towel and serves. 
And he serves in such a way that he gives his life as a ransom for many. And such is that powerful example. And that's what's so important about being a humble leader in God's household, in God's flock, is that the elders should be able to identify themselves with their people instead of being absent and aloof. Can't get, you know, you can't get a hold of this guy, or he never responds. But that's exactly it. He says, don't lord it over. You know, people who, people who lord their authority over other people are notoriously difficult to reach. Seems like the higher up they are, the more they are out of reach. But what is the remedy for that? What is the remedy for those allotted to our charge? That is, those who God has personally placed under our spiritual oversight and care. What's the remedy? But proving to be examples of the flock. See, that's the, the, the lording it over is counteracted by a willingness of proving to be an example to the flock. If you're always lording it over people, you're probably you're going to see you're going to see people as the Pharisees saw the Jews of their day. Right? They saw them as unclean. They kept them at an arm's distance. Right? They almost saw the people as bad as Gentiles. How are you supposed to see that person as an example if they're never around? It's not, it's not possible. And yet even in Jesus' own time, people, I think, stood in awe of the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and elders. And even Jesus Himself said in Matthew 23, you see what they're, you see what they're teaching? All that they say, all that they teach, do. Follow their instruction. But He says, do not do what they do, for they say and do not do. They're hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. They don't listen to their own advice. And so they lord it over people by even proclaiming to them the Old Testament, the, the Word of God, and yet do not go so far as to place themselves under that authority. But they use it to coerce and control. And I guarantee you, if you lord it over people, you will violate the first instruction. You will look for ways to take advantage of your flock and see how you can gain personally from them. But that is not how to shepherd someone whose spiritual well-being you are held responsible for. They're called to care for the flock. To set an example. We don't want to lord it over anyone. In some practical sense, one way we avoid doing that is staying accountable, staying visible. How can we set an example that can't be seen? So we want to be with you all so that our lives can be seen, so that we can set an example. Another way is to avoid micromanaging. It's trust. Although we have oversight, we are not in your lives in such a way as to engage in some sort of spiritual nitpicking. Always looking over your shoulder. We trust the work of the Spirit and the Word to do those works. We are called to teach and to apply and to walk with you. But not to micromanage. And along the heels of that, we would avoid lording it over you by to remember that our ultimate authority is the Word of God. That cannot be emphasized enough, friends, that we all stand under the authority of God's Scripture. That when we lead you, when we teach, we understand that when, even when I'm up here, when I'm preaching to you, I am preaching to myself as well. But I fall under this same authority. We are called to lead you. To lead the sheep. And this example is important. Listen to what Athanasius said. The life should command and the tongue should persuade. Right? The life should command and the tongue should persuade. So we should not merely be all talk. We should not be full of just words. But the word that we preach should bear itself out in our lives so that, we, so that you guys clearly see, yes, the word is doing something in the life of the one who calls himself my elder or my teacher. You want to see that at work. And that is not an option for those who want to be elders in God's flock. The power of God should be evident within us. We should live lives submissive to the Holy Spirit's work. We should be the first to hear 
the Word of God and obey it. See, it's not just, it's, it's show and tell. Remember, you ever do that when you were kids? Hey, it's show and tell day. I'm going to bring this person or I'm going to bring my pet lizard or something. You show, but then you tell about it. Should should be the same in the church, especially in, in, uh, under the elders. Or for the elders. That we not only tell, but we demonstrate. And we find we have specifics for this as well. If you turn to 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul is counseling a young pastor. And I take some comfort in this. There, it's in all likelihood that Timothy, at this point, is younger than I am right now. He's a young man. And basically his qualifications are being called into question because he is a young man. Paul says this to him, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in... Now listen to this. Very specific, very deliberate but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So, so Paul did not leave it up to someone else in the church. Timothy, you're too young. You've got to grow more, right? You've got to learn more before you can set an example. He says, no, not at all. In fact, you may be the only one right now who is willing to set that example. As we know from 1 Timothy, it is most likely that there were other elders in that church who were failing to set an example. But they were taking occasion to lord it over others. They were teaching doctrine that was at odds with the purity of the gospel. But listen to this. Your elders are to set an example in speech. I think that one's pretty clear. The way we talk, the content of what we say, but also the manner in which we say it. Are we, are we always terse? Are we always sharp? Or is our speech seasoned with salt in which we're always looking for an occasion to encourage you and to build up the body? Are we continually crass? Or is our speech becoming of a man of God? Conduct, right? Keeps us immediately from being all, all talk. Not just what you say, but what you do, how you live your life. What is the work of your hands and feet producing? What does Jesus say in Matthew 7? You will know them by their what? Their fruit. The conduct of an elder will bear that out. What kind, when, you, when you look at your elders, do you see fruit? Do you see a growth in the fruit of the Spirit? Do you see us walking with the Lord Jesus? Do you see us engaging in godly deeds of meeting the needs of the flock? Or do you see us doing otherwise? Here's the other one. Love, right? Do we love with a godly love? Are we constantly pursuing your highest good? Are we constantly looking for ways to nourish you by the Word? Are we loving you in the, in the sense of pastoral care? Are we always pointing you to Christ? Are we helping you pursue godliness? Are we also demonstrating a love for the right things? A devotion to things that are redemptive? Or are we engaging endlessly in things that are frivolous and ultimately have no eternal significance? So we want to set an example not only in how we love, but loving the right things, in what we love. Faith. Do we demonstrate consistently a trust in Christ? Not only a belief in the gospel, but as the days go on, especially in times of opposition, right? That's when men fail. That's when hearts, hearts grow weak and frail. Is when persecution and opposition come. But are we setting example, an example of keeping the faith, of trusting that God continues to do His work in the end of all things, right? Are we setting an example of that? Purity. Are we men who are keeping ourselves unsoiled from the world? Are we exercising true religion in that regard? Are we living pure lives? Think about it in this way. Are we staying Faithful to our wives, right? Are we walking faithfully in our marriage? Are we living lives without compromise? Are we fighting the good fight of faith in the midst of not only persecution, but even temptation to sin? In all these things, we are called to show ourselves an example of those who believe. And this is a very demanding charge, especially for a young man who is already burdened with certain challenges of the ministry in a very pagan city. That is Ephesus. 
And all too often, pastors fall in that area and therefore disqualify themselves. We don't want to be elders like that. We want to remain qualified and show ourselves to be an example of holy living. Another way of, that this is manifested is growth in this. Growth in these very qualifications. We're never going to live up to these perfectly. We're never going to set a perfect example. But what, what is to be desired from us and what is to be observed from you is a, consi- a consistent pattern of this display and a consistent growth in that example. That's why he says, be that example, right? Proving to be an example, not some static state of existence as if the example never changes, but that we are always demonstrating a growth in setting that example, that it is becoming over time more obvious and present. And an example that is worthy to be followed. Right? So you see how this works. In order to be an example, we have to be able to be with you, to identify with you. And let me, let me tell you very confidently, be, be sure that Jeremy and I, your elders, we, we fight the same temptations, right? We have, we have very similar challenges that you do. We identify with you in that way. And so the example that we set is one that we not only want you to follow, but one we can say very truthfully is one that you can follow. That's why Paul himself could say, follow me as I follow Christ. He says also in 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Well, their example was especially obvious, especially visible, that Paul did not hold the people to whom he ministered at a distance so they could not observe the presence of integrity. Right? So they could not observe even the various challenges in Paul's life. So we not only want these things to be present within us, we not only want to grow in them, but we want to persevere in them. Persevere through the discouragements. Persevere through the persecution and temptation. To hold fast, right? To hold fast to the Word that was given to us. Even Jesus Himself says in John 13, 15, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus remains our ultimate example. So all that and more characterizes proof of humble leadership. And we desire to prove that to you. We don't want you to have any doubt in your mind of our commitment to you. That we are somehow hypocrites or that we're wishy-washy or we're, we're unsure about our responsibility towards you. We want to be sure of all of those things. So that's proof of humble leadership. The third and final one is this. Reflecting the heart of Christ and leading God's people is characterized by the pursuit of eternal reward. See, now this, know what we've just heard already. What is one thing we, we are to avoid? Is sordid gain. Right. And at the end of this chunk of text, we can see more clearly why. Because we are pursuing honor from God, not honor from men. Our desire is the Lord's approval. And yes, we would like your approval, but only under God's approval. Only because we are living our lives consistently with God's standard of shepherding. So listen to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. As we've mentioned before in, in, regarding 1 Peter, there are many mentions, many occasions where there is an appearance or there is a manifestation uh, of the Lord Jesus Himself. And it's very difficult, depending on what the text says, to conclude that this all points to one particular thing. We have to let context help us decide how to interpret that. And I personally interpret this Appearing because there is an unfading crown of glory, because there is an eternal reward in the picture, I have to conclude that this is the second coming. We know that Jesus is the chief shepherd. It's the only time this word actually appears or term appears in Scripture. See, we are under shepherds, and we look forward to the return of the chief shepherd. And so in awe and in some sense a holy terror, we model ourselves after 
Christ. We want to be worthy of that office, right? We want to be worthy of the office of shepherd, knowing that Christ is the chief shepherd. He is the boss. He is the one in charge. See, in John 10, as we read this morning, he is the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he's the great shepherd. In Psalm 23, he's the shepherd who leads us by still waters and restores our soul. He is the shepherd who is struck so that the sheep are scattered, according to Zechariah 13.7. See, he is our shepherd in many ways. But when he appears, when he is made manifest, that is, when he returns in glory to the faithful under-shepherd, we receive the unfading crown of glory. And what this points, and this is a characteristic you should also watch out for in your elders, is that we ultimately desire honor from Christ. Now, sometimes that is, that is a challenge. One of the greatest challenges of leading God's flock is this desire for recognition. It's a desire for men that we are doing something right, that you notice the good that we do, right? Yes, we want, to, we want our lives to be under scrutiny. We want you to be able and willing to point out where we fall short. But we also crave, we, we, we crave that acknowledgement that we are shepherding well. And yet we don't want that to become an idol, right? We don't, that, we don't want that to be the ultimate reason that we shepherd you. We want to shepherd well because we want that acknowledgement from Christ. We want, we want Him to honor us. We want Him to acknowledge that we have done the work of a shepherd well. So that all those things that remain unseen, unnoticed, unpraised, unacknowledged, See, we continue in the work of shepherding because we know that even though you may not notice it, it is enough that God notices it. It's enough that God acknowledges it. It should be enough for us that you simply are blessed by our work, whether you notice it or not. But it is God that notices it, and we, and we, want, we do this work ultimately for Him. We do the work as under-shepherds to give the chief shepherd all the glory and praise. See, that's why we do the work, right? Because we want you to become better worshipers, better followers of the chief shepherd. The one who shepherds perfectly. This anticipation of reward is also echoed in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24-25. through Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things but they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. What are we after here? A crown of glory. Some of you may be watching the Olympics this year. I'm not. <laughs> but what are they going for? They're going for the gold, right? Honor. That they have the pride of victory. That all that hard work bore fruit. But I tell you something, that gold, that gold is going to tarnish. No matter how praiseworthy or honorable or or awesome the prize is, if it is not from God, it is one that will tarnish. It is one that will decay with time. See, most of us are going to die and no one's going to remember us. Our memory will fade with the passage of time. Which is why we work for that which cannot be taken away. It is why we work for that which is unfading. And what is promised here is the unfading crown of glory. See, this is not an imperial crown, but this is a victor's crown. This is one who has persevered and has overcome, somewhat like a wreath, usually worn after triumph on the field of battle or even an athletic competition. Peter is drawing from what he can observe in his own time. And on these victor's crowns, these wreaths were often composed from, of flowers or even leaves. In some cases, ivy or even parsley. It's a variety of things you could use. But that would fade with time. And that's the difference with the crown of glory. It's unfading. will always be a witness of a faithful ministry. It will always be a testimony that the Lord has looked on with approval of the work that has been done by the elder. And I would love for that to be true of your elders here. See, the Greek word used here is amarantanon, which refers to a flower that never faded. It was often a symbol of immortality. See, that with the passage of time would never die or wither or lose its luster. See, any other reward will. I mean, think about it. Sometimes we even forget the things we've done. You know, if you were an athlete, I mean, how many of you still have trophies from your t-ball game? Of course, that didn't matter because everyone got a trophy back then when you were young and you played t-ball. It didn't matter. Everyone was a winner. Everyone was in first place. Stuff didn't matter. 
Most of us don't even have those things anymore. And even if you did, they fade with time or they dropped off the shelf so that the, you know, the batter position, he's missing his head or his bat, can't even do it anymore. See, even we forget. Even those things that we valued when we first received them lose their luster, they lose their importance to us. But, not, but, but in this case, when it comes from divine approval, God honoring the work you've done, that, that will never lose its luster. That is the thing that should be most important to us. And even though this context is primarily speaking of elders, I want to remind you, church, that we should have the same attitude toward any work that we do to render it unto God's glory, to do it for the benefit of His people and for the praise of His name. See, neither will those things fade, though tested with fire. We want any kind of work that we do to endure and to hear when we stand before God, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of the Master. I would desire that all of us would hear that. We could stand before God pleased, not with the work we've done in our own strength, but with the work that He has done through us as His righteous instrument through the power of His Holy Spirit. Even in times of prosperity, in times of great blessing, even in times, and especially in times of great persecution, to know that we stood fast, that we held the line, and we kept doing everything we did so that Christ would be glorified. Keeping no mind in the praise and admiration of men, but in the honor of Christ. Knowing that what we do will never lose its beauty if it's done for Him and in His name, but will last forever. As Strauch says, the glory is the reality. The crown is the metaphor, right? Glory isn't metaphor here. The glory is the substance of the reward. It is the crown that is the metaphor. But to know that as we work faithfully, we look forward to a future of certain glory with Christ and honor before Him. What greater cause do we have here and now than to work for Him? In whatever capacity, whether that be elder or anything else that the Lord has placed us in. Listen to the example that Christ gives us in Hebrews chapter 2. After Christ suffered, He was crowned with glory and honor. After He suffered, know what had to come first. And this is great encouragement for those who are going through persecution right now, who are suffering for Christ. That honor awaits. But listen to this, Hebrews 2.9. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with, what? Glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And so it goes with us. That as Jesus did this, we are perfected through sufferings. And that as we fulfill our earthly tasks from an eternal perspective, desire for God's honor, with a desire to share in the glory of the Savior, we will be acknowledged as stewards worthy of the call of the Gospel. That's what we desire. We desire eternal reward. Honor from God and not from man. So, in terms of conclusion, where do you guys come in? I want to encourage you a couple things. Jeremy and I are your elders. We need help, right? We want you to participate in this work with us. So we would ask you this, pray for us. Even Paul asked for prayer. Paul the Apostle. Pray for us. This is not easy. You guys are great, but this is not easy. We need prayer that we would be equal to the task to prepare our hearts to serve you. And to do so with holy motives. So pray for us. Secondly, show up. It is our delight to worship with you. It is our delight to minister to you through word and the ordinances. Be here with us to worship Christ together. Third, partner with us. It is our calling to equip you for the work of the ministry. So see yourselves as part of a local expression of the body of Christ. Use your gifts. And do so to the glory of God. And number four, according to Hebrews 13, 17, we'll get into this next Lord's Day. But insofar as our teaching is consistent 
and our example is consistent with the Word of God, submit to our teaching, submit to us as we keep watch over you. Because as Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, we will have to give an account. And we want to be, Jeremy and I want to be good elders. We want to be faithful. We want to know what's going on in your lives. So please give us that pleasure. Give us that privilege to walk with you by faith as Christ leads us. And to those of you out there who desire to be elders, who desire to lead God's flock, a final caution from James 3.1, do not many of you desire to be teachers knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. So this task is, is one with seriousness, one with great gravity, one that is not entered into without considering this stricter judgment. We want to be faithful to it, and we want to be faithful to you. So I would ask you, please hold us up in prayer that we may be servants worthy of our calling and to shepherd you faithfully and with obvious Christ-likeness. So next Lord's Day, we will uh, talk about you younger men, and by extension women, how do you respond to the oversight of elder rule within the church? But for now, we can commit all that we have said and considered today to the great shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for our time in your word. We ask that it would do its work in us. We thank you, Lord, for um, the gift of elders. I know that I have benefited immensely from it to, to, to have spent even my youth and, and being a young man under those who faithfully taught, clearly taught the, the word of God and stood under its authority. And I, and I pray that you would even now equip Jeremy and I continually to, to do the same, to be faithful to the flock that you have allotted to our charge, to take it seriously, to live lives worthy of the calling we have received. And even by application, Lord, I pray for those in here who, who do the work of the ministry, who, have, who are serving the church faithfully, that you would continue to strengthen and help them to complete their tasks with diligence, with excellence, with a mind to serve your people and to bring glory to you. Lord, we do look forward to the appearing of the chief shepherd. And we do desire, Father, that you would help us to minister in such a way to one another that our works would be approved of you, that we would pursue this so that we would be honored by you. Help us to do so in faith as your spirit empowers us and emboldens us to that task. Help us stand faithfully in the midst of, of opposition. Lord, even to those who want to talk and who want to shout and yet even not listen. Help us to be patient with one another as the Good Shepherd has been patient with us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.